the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We look at what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic values, our Catholic social teaching. We look at them and to see how in our analysis of what's going on, our understanding, and once we understand those things, the actions we take in our personal lives, in the opinions we express, and ultimately at some points in the way that we vote, um, how we try to move our world, our society, to being more just and more compassionate. So that's what we kind of... uh, do we are in the new year? Hey Tom, you know what I learned the other day? What I here <laughs> that um, I learned that we can say Happy New Year to people for a while longer because the Lunar New Year is only coming up um, in. Uh, it's we're not past the Lunar New Year yet. That's correct, Mansir. I think I think it comes up in a little over two weeks. I think that's when it's going to be. Okay, so I'm delighted that this week we have as one of our guests, we have a newly elected congressman, Mike Lola. He is representing the 17th Congressional District, and uh, he began serving just a little while ago, and I'm delighted that he is taking the time to be with us. Um, uh, <clears throat> Congressman Lola, Representative Laura, how would you prefer Mike to be referred to? Uh, you could call me Mike. Okay, Mike. Well, I am delighted that you're taking the time to be with us. And a little bit of um, of uh, disclaimer, since I grew up in Westchester, maybe not exactly in your district, I'm delighted that we have a representative from Westchester joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. So, Mike, for our listeners, and we speak across the country, I think um, people understand that Westchester is borders on the northern part of New- the northern part of New York City. Where's your district? What are some of the towns and places your district covers? So my district is all of Rockland County on the west of Hudson side, Uh, everything north of the Tappan Zee Bridge in Westchester, all of Putnam County and three towns in Dutchess County. So I have East Fishkill in Dutchess. I have Carmel and Mayapak in in Putnam. I have Bedford in Yorktown and Mount Pleasant in uh, Westchester. I have uh, Clarkstown and Pearl River and Suffern in Rockland. So those are some of the areas uh, that are in my district. Now, if I remember my geography correct, that's a pretty straightforward district. It kind of goes straight across. If it weren't for the Hudson River, you could walk straight across and you'd pretty much be walking in a line. It's it's a pretty compact uh, district yeah. uh, for sure. And, you know, densely populated. It takes about an hour 20 from, you know, one end to the other end. Uh, of the district. It, it's from the New Jersey border to the Connecticut border. So, so it's uh, it's pretty compact. Great. So would you give our listeners a little bit of sense of how did a an accounting and finance major from Manhattan College uh, go astray and kind of <laughs> get into uh, the world that you're in now? 
Well, you know, the uh, the Christian brother uh, mantra, you know, certainly uh, helped me uh, get into uh, uh, an, uh, a career of service and, and um, being involved uh, politically. I got my start uh, while I was at Manhattan College. Uh, I was an intern for John McCain on his 2008 presidential uh, race and uh, met uh, Ed Cox, who uh, became the state chairman of the New York Republican Party. Uh, in 2009. Uh, he's former President uh, Nixon's son-in-law. And uh, so, you know, I went to work for him uh, right out of college and worked my way up uh, politically. I became executive director of the state Republican Party in New York and uh, then went on to run Rob Astorino's campaign for governor in 2014 against Andrew Cuomo. Uh, went to work for Rob in the county executive's office in Westchester uh, got involved, you know, locally in Rockland, became a deputy town supervisor uh, over in the town of Orangetown, where I live in Pearl River. And, um, you know, ultimately uh, decided to run uh, myself in 2020 for the state assembly uh, in a two to one Democratic district in Rockland County, uh, which we uh, we flipped, uh, defeating a 14 year incumbent. Uh, and then obviously this year, the the opportunity arose to run for uh, Congress, and uh, and I took it. Well, let me just say a word of congratulations to you, because in this day and age, I think people who are willing to stand for public service um, deserve a tremendous amount of of credit. And so, thank you for your willingness to to serve. I I'm, I'm not naive enough to say that. I'm not sure I'd extend that congratulations to 100% of our elected <laughs> officials, but I certainly want to extend it to, uh, to, to you. Um, I appreciate so, it. Well, anyway, so, um, you know, I, I'm not asking you for your campaign speech, but I'm asking you is, what would you hope that, you know, you might be able to make a positive impact on in your kind of job. And again, our listeners, we've talked about these things in a little way. Um, obviously, despite rule changes and things, seniority does matter. Who controls which house matters. And, you know, we may go into this a little bit. But so what do you see? What's on your agenda mm-hmm. in the relatively short term for um, kind of making an impact that's going to help the people of your district to help the rest of us? Well, there's two things that really kind of drive me. Um, You know, when my dad passed away almost 10 years ago, the last thing he said to me uh, was, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, really told me to to always do uh, good work and and, uh, keep my moral compass. And so that, you know, that motivated me in terms of running for public office and, and serving our community. And the second thing, one of the things my grandfather has said to me is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think, you know, when I look at the challenges and the issues that we're facing as a country, uh, regardless of, of political parties, regardless of, of the politics of it, um, uh, on any one given issue, my main focus is to make sure that everyone uh, has a good paying job to provide for their families, a quality education for their children, access to housing and health care, and that they're living in safe neighborhoods. 
And those are the kind of the core issues that I uh, focus on. You know, how do we make our country more affordable? How do we grow our economy so that people actually have a job to provide for their families? How do we address issues of housing and healthcare? How do we address crime? You know, those, I, I think when you talk to people uh, and, and, and everybody takes a step away from the politics of the day, um, that's what most people care about. That's what most people focus on. And so that's kind of where I try to keep my focus when it comes to policies and when it comes to issues uh, is, is in that ballpark. We're speaking with uh, Mike Lola, who is just recently elected representative from New York's 17th Congressional District, which includes Rockland County, Westchester, uh, Putnam, and a little bit of, of Dutchess, I think. And uh, I'm delighted that he's taking the time to be with us. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this, uh, Mike. Um, I wish we had 435 representatives who spoke as you as you do about the issues that we have. I mean, and, and I, as somebody who's kind of been around and observing this, for a while, boy, it sometimes can be a little discouraging in hearing people leading with slogans and, and lines like that. And I could probably quote you one and one, one from the extreme right, the extreme left. I mean, uh, you know, what you're talking about makes so much sense. And, you know, I'll share with you kind of a conversation I had, I believe it was yesterday morning or maybe a day before that with some of my fellow kind of colleagues who provide human services. And they were talking about the important role of the, of, of the human service sector, which obviously I believe in, and it's terribly important. But I said to them, when we think about the well-being of people, we have to remember that for most people, the biggest thing that provides for their well-being is a decent job. So, and... You know, I'll tell you this story, uh, Mike. We had a, you, you know, we have a huge immigration crisis in the country. And for a variety of reasons, which we don't completely understand, that at Catholic Charities in New York, we had a couple of thousand asylum seekers show up at our doors because people in Texas, and not the governor of Texas, but IRS. INS officials in Texas gave them our address. I don't know. We don't know why. But anyway, they showed up. But what I want to go further is, you know, they maybe needed some shelter, which New York City was providing. But what do you think? And this is an easy layup question. What do you think almost the first words or phrases out of their mouth was to our workers? Can you can you give a guess? I need help. Yes, but they said, can you find me a job? Yeah, yeah. That Can you find yeah. me a job? And that's what yeah. was on their mind. And it, it didn't surprise us, but the help they wanted was the help to be able to provide for themselves. And well, again, that's, as, as Ronald Reagan said, you know, the best social program is a job. And, you know, that's, that's the truth. People, people want to work. They uh, they want to be able to provide for their families. Uh, they want to be able uh, to provide for themselves. And I think the immigration crisis 
uh, is, you know, kind of a microcosm of a bigger crisis we have uh, in, in, in our country. Uh, but, you know, my wife is an immigrant. She's an immigrant from Eastern Europe. Uh, she came here in search of a better life. And, and so I've been through that immigration process um, and, you know, getting her her work authorization. And, uh, you know, she went to, to Manhattan College and got her MBA degree. And, you know, the, the people want to be able to achieve. And I think that's the promise and the hope of our country. And so when I look at the immigration uh, crisis that we're dealing with right now, I think you have three major issues going on. Number one is obviously the border situation uh, and the massive inflow of migrants, of human trafficking, of drug trafficking uh, that is coming across our border and that we need to we need to seriously address. Right. Number two is the fact that you have, uh, you know, over 20 million, by some estimates, it's now over 30 million undocumented immigrants who are here. Um, and then you have obviously the legal immigration system, which is broken and the process is broken. So there's there's multifaceted uh, you know, problem here that that we have to address in a meaningful way. It requires bipartisanship. And frankly, both sides have, have failed miserably on this issue uh, for their own reasons. And, you know, it, it, it has to stop. There has to be an understanding that we need to fix the legal immigration system. We need to address the, the 20 plus million uh, undocumented immigrants who are here. Does that mean pathway to citizenship? Not necessarily for everyone, but there's got to be a legalization process uh, to, to deal with the, the number of people who are here. And then you have to deal with the border. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's kind of uh, the chicken or the egg. The Republicans say we're not dealing with you know, the legal immigration system and, and the undocumented immigrants who are here until we know that the border is secure. And the Democrats say, we're not going to do that unless we know that we're going to have a plan. And it's everybody's got to kind of put their their swords down here and focus on an actual solution that addresses this challenge, because this is unsustainable. You cannot continue to have millions of migrants crossing our, our border illegally, uh, you know, every year. You can't continue to have uh, you know, tens of thousands of people seeking, uh, you know, asylum and it taking two to three years to get a hearing. It, it just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. So we're speaking with a representative of New York's 17th Congestional District, Mike Lawler. And Mike, on that issue, you, boy, that what you're saying just resonates very strongly with, with me. And I, as I say, I I think part of the issue, which, you know, you just have been dealing with in the past couple of weeks in Congress that all of us witnessed is the divisiveness. And it's not divisiveness only across parties. It's even within parties and both parties where, you know, people try to hold each other up and, and, and stuff like that. But what you're saying about the immigration stuff is absolutely right. But part of the problem, which you've identified, is everybody's got their swords up. People don't trust each other. And so to to get a comprehensive thing where you got to deal with all of that requires a little bit of trust that we are going to, that it's not bait and switch. That in other words... Well, yeah. well that's just it. And and, and like, I, you know, I've, I've tried to lay this out in three kind of buckets that need right. to be dealt with. But I strongly believe the border has to be secure. I don't right. know how you can continue to allow uh, this situation 
Um, right. Because it goes beyond migrants trying to come here. It, it, you're talking about human trafficking. You're talking right. about fentanyl pouring into our communities, killing yep. hundreds of Americans a day. It, it's it's a crisis. And yep. um, it, it so you, you have to tackle that. You have to tackle the fact that you have people who are here, you know, uh, illegally, but they're they're that some of them have overstayed their visa. Right. right. So they're they're working they're, yep. they're, they're You know, they have a Social Security number. So this is this is multifaceted. Yep. You have to you have to be serious about trying to come up with practical, reasonable solutions that once and for all create a system that is fair, that is clear um, and that is enforceable. And that and that to me is uh, the crux of the problem here. Let me add one fourth factor, which is incredibly broad and can't be solved unilaterally. But the reason why you have such a flux, particularly, let's say, in the Western Hemisphere, is because of the economic, the political, the social chaos in a number of other countries, which is driving it. Now, the United States can't solve that on its own, but I've oftentimes wondered, well, let me just say it, my opinion, I'm not putting words in your life. I think we need to dust off the Monroe Doctrine from two, two centuries ago and come up with a new one. How do we collaborate or how do we work together as a hemisphere, as two continents to deal with trafficking issues, with drug issues, with poverty, with terror. That's that's the driver of, of there, why people there's, come. There's no question, uh, and and that obviously is is a, a long discussion in and of right. itself. Uh, but there's no question, you know, as we have focused our efforts as a country in other parts of of the world, uh, including Europe and and uh, Asia um, and Africa. You know, I think at times there has been a uh, lapse in uh, support and cooperation uh, in our hemisphere. Uh, And, you know, I think that's something certainly that has an impact on us. You look at what is happening and what are the causes of why people are, uh, you know, trying to get to our southern border. uh, It is is significant. And I think one of the things that I really do believe we do need to do uh, is take on the cartels. These drug cartels are not only wreaking havoc in our country uh, with the massive inflow of drugs coming across our border, but they are wreaking havoc on the governments in, in these Latin American and, and South American countries. And that is something that has to be dealt with. Um, you know, when you look at the fact that over 100,000 Americans died from overdose last year, uh, it, you know, much of it tied to fentanyl. Uh, that is a significant crisis that we need to deal with. Um, and the cartels are playing a major role in that. And so I think we need to uh, work with our allies uh, in the region um, to, to address the immigration problem, to address the government unrest in some of these countries, uh, and, and really the economic challenges within those countries and, and how we uh, help stabilize uh, the region. Mike, thank you for your one final granular question. Do you have a do you have committee assignment yet? So we just uh, got notified this week that I'm going to be serving on House Financial Services, uh, which is an A committee, uh, as they they refer to it. 
Um, and so I'll be the only freshman uh, out of New York uh, serving on, on an A committee, uh, which you know is, is great for my district. Uh, the 17th district has about 30,000 financial service sector employees living in it. Uh, obviously, New York is heavily impacted by the financial services industry, as well as housing and real estate. So a lot of these issues that we're going to be dealing with uh, in that committee will have a, you know, a, a direct impact on New York and on my district. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited by the opportunity to serve on House Financial Services. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, Mike, but you may be disqualified because with your accounting and finance background, you may know something about the issue. And I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was uh, uh, obviously having having that uh, background in, in uh, school and uh, in the assembly, I've served on housing and banks uh, up yeah. in Albany. So. You know, I have a, uh, a rudimentary understanding of the issues, which uh, when you hear some of uh, the elected officials speak sometimes on, on some of these more complex issues, it's clear they uh, they do not. Hey, Representative Mike Lawler, 17th Congressional District, Westchester, Rockland, Putnam, a bit of Duchess. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. And really, thank you so much for your public service. And thank you for uh, your willingness to serve and congratulations and best of luck in your freshman term. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it and look right. forward to being back soon. Well, we'll we're going to invite you again. So uh, okay. thank you, um, Tom. Uh, I think we'll take a break and we'll then come back in just a few moments. As we say it, just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Just love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We speak about a variety of different issues on just love. One of the issues which is very, very um, troubling and very um, significant is the issue of those who are without homes those who are living on our streets, those who are living on our shelters. And it's an issue which is touching so many different communities throughout the United States. And I think it is being recognized increasingly as an issue that somehow we need to figure out how we do it because of the real challenges, the real difficulties, the unacceptability of so many people having uh, not having a decent place to to live. So I am very, very pleased that we're going to be speaking now with somebody who is an expert in this, who has done a lot of research, a lot of work in the area, Professor Kim Hoppe, who is at Columbia University School of Public Health. And I'm delighted that Professor Hopper has joined us on Just Love. Professor Hopper, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and our audience today. Oh, you're welcome, Monsignor. Good to be with you. Great. So listen, why don't you um, give our listeners just a little bit. I know we don't, we don't need the whole resume because we want to get into the topic. But give our listeners a little bit what you've been doing in this area for the past number of decades. Uh, looking at those who do not have homes. Sure. Um, We began our work in the late 70s with Ellen Baxter through the Community Service Society and did one of the first studies of why people are on the streets and how they survive there and what keeps them there and what might make a difference in remedying that situation. And then I've tried to follow that, as you say, for the next four decades as the sort of twin histories of housing, homelessness, and then mental illness um, have intersected repeatedly throughout that period. And so having, having done that, um, let, me, let me ask you a broad question. Um, what's the difference today than four decades ago? Funny you should ask, my senior. Um, the... Coalition for the Homeless did a street survey just badly timed. It was published right when COVID hit New York, so it became instantaneously obsolete. Um, But we saw many of the same features um, when people on the street were asked why they were there and what they hoped uh, to get out of uh, being there and why they weren't using the available shelters. Um, And they had to do mostly with questions of danger, or perceived menace in the facilities, even though those same facilities had grown massively since the late 70s, early 80s. Um, But generally speaking, they had a a kind of reason to being there. It wasn't simply that they were unable to appreciate the perils that they were 
uh, facing um, or hadn't tried the alternatives that were available, they just made a considered decision to stay where they were and fend for themselves. And is that kind of what you think was also going on decades ago? Um, But the situation was much worse decades ago in the shelters. Um, They were really hazardous places to be. And you essentially checked your dignity at the door when you applied. And so there's been at least some improvement. What have, what have some of the improvements been? Well, two things, I think. One is our, our research happened to coincide with the filing of the right to shelter case in 1979, Callahan against Kerry, which eventually settled, um, was eventually settled in a consent decree that established certain basic conditions that all shelter had to meet and established the principle that shelter had to be essentially proportional to the expressed need. So that's why the shelter system has expanded so dramatically in New York City and nowhere else, by the way. This is the only city still that has a right to shelter. And generally speaking, the the quality has gone up, but it's still, it can be really tough for people who are dealing with sort of other issues at the same time as urgent need for shelter. You know, uh, Professor Hopper, I can um, kind of collaborate that in a very simple one person survey or anecdote. There's a gentleman uh, who is in the front of the church that I am at near Grand Central, and he is there pretty much all the time. Um, Interesting guy. And, you know, I am not a clinical psychologist. I am don't have those degrees, but I would certainly venture a guess that he has some significant emotional issues and and mental illnesses that he has, um, which again, as you know, and but sometimes we don't, which doesn't mean that a person isn't very insightful or isn't very intelligent. It's just it's another category of things. There are people who, you know, are pretty stable, who may not be super intelligent. And then there are, you know, so, but anyway, the reason I say that is because you can engage him in conversation. I mean, even though he is obviously dealing with some disturbances and that's his point. He said, whether it's 15 degrees or whatever, whether he's got a shirt on and doesn't have a shirt on, He just feels safer and better off living on the street because he perceives the dangerousness of the shelters. And so, um, and again, where he is in point of time, it doesn't make any difference that they're better today than they were 20 years ago. He still perceives them to be dangerous. Right. And I, I mean, to me, even the early work we did, Uh, sort of ran up against that same brick wall was if this is the only alternative, people are going to refuse. And so we immediately sort of pivoted to the question of, are there viable alternatives to emergency shelter? And if so, what do they look like? How do we access them? And can they be brought to scale? And we found even then there were these promising programs, some of which the Franciscans were were running in, in supported SROs and others that were even streamlined the model so that you could actually offer housing with services 
to people living on the street and literally move from the street to their own place in record time. And it just completely re reconfigured the work of outreach in the late 80s, early 90s. And has that continued? Yeah, see, that's the, that is in some ways the most galling thing about this whole story mm -hmm. is we know those programs can work. There's good evidence, well-documented, published studies that show how they work. They have continued. In fact, they're in virtually every state, I think, now, even though they, they began in New York City. Um, but they've never been brought to scale. And the question is always, have we forgotten that they work? Have we, do we no longer care? Or are there things that are standing in the way of bringing those to scale that we really should take a harder critical look at? And, I, and without that, promises to do something more compassionate just fall on uh, as kind of empty and hollow to my ears anyway. So this is, this is very simplistic, but it's so obvious. Is one of the challenges of bringing it to scale money? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Because I imagine uh, programs like these are not cheap to run. They're not cheap, and we sort of, um, you know, we rated we rated, rated the pantry for two decades with the sort of um, existing housing stock in New York City, and so doing it today is a lot more difficult because there aren't sort of vacancies available in the rental market, and renovating or or building fresh housing to meet the need is much more expensive today than it was in the '80s and '90s. You're absolutely right. And there's always, you know, neighborhood opposition to a lot of this and political sort of wrangling behind the scenes. So one of the things that kind of I like to do when have somebody so experienced and expert like you, if we were to make you the czar of this, to, to impact the problem in a significant way, what are the three things you would do as the czar? First thing I do is resign and hire somebody like my wife, um, <laughs> okay. who, who was, you know, worked for the housing department for the state and then for the county. Um, and so knows the ins and outs of development in ways that I don't. I'm an expert on how things fail and then how people adapt to, to the failure of systems. Right. But correcting it from the inside, I mean, it really takes some really hard-nosed fiscal and development and zoning and uh, real estate expertise that I don't, that I don't, I don't have. Um, but it seems to me that you can't do it without. So the second move would be to, to remind her <laughs> that it would be a good idea to bring the state and the feds on at the same time. And the third would be before you announce a program as has happened recently, you line up the ducks that are going to be needed to make it work so that, when the reporters come asking about the feasibility of this program, they don't get all kinds of questions from people who are centrally ingredient to its success, wondering where the hell the resources are going to come from. Um, but I'm not the right person to ask, to, to ask for that. Well, maybe you are, because here's the question I want to ask. You said that what was galling is that decades ago, as you looked at what was happening, you knew what worked, and but it didn't ever get to scale. So 
tell us now what was it that was working? What were the components of the interventions that were working? Good, good question. Because it, I mean, it turns out to have a kind of radical simplicity that is um, really impressive. Um, I mean, one of the ironies of the original lawsuit was that right down this, the block, essentially, was a Catholic worker house of hospitality that was meeting the needs of these same unreachable folks in ways that protected their safety, their dignity, um, and sort of gave them a second chance. Some of those same principles can be built in to the offer of supportive housing, even without the sort of religious undergirding that um, that the workers uh, relied upon. And they can be done by by essentially outreach workers who have a ready access to housing, number one, and number two, can put together or configure the mental health and addiction services that will be readily available to this person as soon as they're ready to use them. And that model has had remarkable success. And the services part can be funded. It's the housing that is, that is so difficult to get sort of to be part of the package. Yeah. And, and as you know, and, and I know the cost of building housing of any type is just astronomical, just astronomical. It is, but imagine if we had like an, an architectural sort of contest to reinvent the notion of, of affordable housing um, in ways that would both maximize occupancy, but also you know preserve dignity, privacy, and and a sort of sense of ownership of those places. I mean, we could you can imagine a politics that would make this a challenge rather than something that to be left behind and ignored as best we as best we're able to do so. Yeah. So I have to ask you one final question. Thank you for your generous time. Did you actually live in Alaska when you were a visiting professor there? Yes. Um, my brother's a 30-year resident there, and I would spend like a month or two um, there in the winter and the summer um, because I was both teaching there and helping out with some research and also helping my brother build a lodge. Um, uh, so I, I mean, I really liked being up there. They have a homeless problem? They do, but it's pretty much um, entirely in the sort of major urban centers. Um, so we were in Fairbanks um, and yeah, same problem there. It's very different out in the villages. Um, you can't be homeless there and survive. So people take you in. Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, Professor Hopper, thanks so much. And You're very welcome. You know, more here. importantly, Thanks for all the work you've done for decades in, in dealing with, you know, what I, I, I'm going to use a word that I'm going to back off of, what is a seemingly intractable problem. Thank you for shedding some light and providing some insight about things that we should be addressing to deal with the problem. So same thank to you, you so senior. much. And the same back to you. Thank okay. you, sir. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Okay. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Uh, We're going to take a break and we will be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we are into the new year, we're discussing a number of topics that um, really are very, very important and relate to how this new year will be coming. And the topic we're going to speak about uh, now is maybe seems like a little bit of a esoteric topic, but we're going to speak about how different laws and different rules and different policies maybe impact one issue in one way, and maybe people think that's positive, and then they impact another area in a way which isn't so positive. And people will have different uh, uh, opinions about what's positive, what's not positive. But talking about the or- the, the area of um, food regulations, how we look at lo- the laws related to our food system is really, really important because um, <clears throat> actually food is so constitutive of us as, as human beings. So I am delighted that we have as our next guest, Bailard Linkaken, who is at a senior fellow at the Reason Foundation. I'm delighted that uh, he has chosen to join us on Just Love and accepted our invitation. Bailard Linkaken, uh, thank you so much for, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Now, I mean, if you asked me this question, I would know the answer if somebody said, well, how'd you get involved in food? And I just say, I like to eat. That would be my answer. But how did you kind of um, make this an area of, of interest for you? How did you become interested in, I guess I would call it food policy, the legal structure of food, or however you would phrase it? That is a great question and one I'm asked uh, a lot, and I answer it the same way uh, every time by saying that I never answer it the same way twice. Um, So I I also like to eat, um, and so certainly that was an uh, entry point. Um, But I'm interested in uh, rights around food and and what you were just discussing. And so I think when I was in law school, we, we studied in constitutional law a bunch of different cases that pertain to food. Um, but no one ever invoked any sort of rights like they would in, say, a First Amendment case where they say they have, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and they tie it to this amendment. Um, with the food cases, people weren't doing that. And it occurred to me that people have rights around food, but that there's not really been any sort of cogent effort to explain why we have those rights, what those rights are. And so that's that's kind of what uh, what led me to to food law. So let me let me pursue that a little bit, because. I'm one of those people who would say, well, yeah, I, got, I know, yeah, there's the right of freedom of religion, there's a right to privacy, there's a right of this. What, what are the food rights? Uh, so my research, I, I, I've read up on, uh, researched a lot of uh, 
early uh, American constitutional laws. And um, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. So I, I, I recognize the, the, the proper role of government in our lives. Um, and I think government uh, has the ability to make our lives better, although often it doesn't. Um, but the rights around food, if we look at you know, how things were um, during the colonial era and then early American law, we see that people, the government had the power, um, as it still does, to require such things as uh, labeling. You, know, you have to say, what is in this product? What's, uh, who produced it? What is the you know, contact information of the producer? Very kind of limited things. And then it, in cases where there were foods that, say, would poison people and kill them, um, the government had the power to, uh, you know, right, rightfully so, um, to rein in or, or ban or prohibit, uh, punish uh, around those products. But largely otherwise, um, the government stayed out of food transactions. And, and one of the things that the colonists uh, fought back against, uh, the British, um, in fact, I, I argue in, in some research that I'm hoping to publish soon, uh, that this was actually, you know, we fought a war against the British because they were tyrants, but they were tyrants in particular around our food. Um, such things, and, and here's a New York uh, tie-in. Uh, New York was the, New York City was the port of entry for most British troops arriving in the colonies. Um, and there was a, there were a couple of quartering laws, uh, which were punitive in nature, but the purpose was to get the colonists to house and feed uh, British soldiers. Well, we have a third amendment, uh, which prohibits quartering, and it's tied directly to the British violations of quartering. And New York's legislature was actually um, abolished by the British uh, for not complying with some of the quartering rules. You had to provide salt, pepper, uh, sugar, vinegar, ale to British troops. And New York said, you know, listen, you're sending all these troops into our port. We just can't do it. It's, it's, it's impossible to comply with. And so England uh, dissolve the legislature. So a lot of our rights are tied to food and food is tied to a lot of our rights. So if we kind of fast forward a, a little bit, um, <laughs> I think you are aware of uh, the New York City attempt to bail the sale of foie gras within mm -hmm. New York City limits. Where do you put that in terms of legal rights or food rights, et cetera? I mean, uh, I put it exactly where the New York Supreme Court put it, which is that farmers have a right to farm and they don't uh, need uh, you know, city lawmakers to tell them how to do it. Um, and, and so farmers have a right to raise animals. And if they abuse those animals, then that's when uh, the government can and should step in. Um, but foie gras produced uh, worldwide um, and the methods are, are no better or worse than many other um, food uh, production processes and foie gras is delicious, which, you know, factors into rights because, you know, people have a right to enjoy themselves. Um, so let, and let me, let me ask you a little bit because you um, tell me a little bit what this, what the decision said, tell our listeners what they did say, because let me, let me phrase it in this way to focus your answer. Mm -hmm. um, I assume it was an economic law that New York City, well, let me say it this way. New York City didn't say they couldn't grow it. They just said nobody in New York City could sell it, could buy it. Yes, could buy or, or sell it, I think right. is the more um, uh, pertinent thing. Um, yeah, so uh, New York City adopted this uh, this ban on the sale of foie gras and city borders right. in 2019. And the ban was set to take effect uh, 
I think on Black Friday, it's a November, whatever day that was. Um, And the producers, the two leading producers in America who produce something like, you know, 99% of the foie gras in America, and they're located in Hudson Valley, um, they sued, uh, I think in May. And uh, the uh, state Supreme Court, which in New York is not the highest court, it's the lowest court, um, said that uh, that that was likely illegal at the time. Um, They issued the the, um, state ag department did uh, an injunction. um, I'm sorry, the the court issued an injunction in September. And then the uh, Department of Ag and Markets in, in New York State uh, basically upheld uh, that and said, hey, listen, there, you know, they issued a ruling uh, a few days before Christmas and said, you know, you, 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 New York City cannot legislate uh, outside of your, your borders and then tell farmers what to do um, in a place that is, is not New York City. We are speaking with Bela Linkakin, who is the senior fellow at the Reason Foundation. Let me go more broadly now. Because you've looked at how war impacts our food system and sustainability. Um, So what would be smarter laws that would make our food system better? Well, I think that uh, positive laws, meaning, you know, we need more laws in X area. Certainly there's needs in some areas for additional laws. But in my book, um, which you, I think, just alluded to, which is called Biting the Hands That Feed Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable, I argue that many laws that are already on the books, such as farm subsidies, um, are actually enemies of sustainability. And, you know, they, they pay farmers to do things that are less sustainable and hence uh, make it easier for them to compete with uh, farmers who they already have an economic advantage over, small farmers who are, are engaged in more sustainable practices. And so essentially what I'm arguing is that from a sustainability perspective in the book, um, we should question laws. And if they're not actually uh, promoting sustainability and and they're claiming to be, um, or they're prohibiting sustainable practices, such as growing a garden in your yard um, or sharing food with the homeless, um, you know, preventing food waste and helping out people in need. Yeah. These laws should be abolished at once and, so there are plenty of bad laws in the books. And when we look to improve um, you know, the environment, when we look to improve food safety, when we look to improve uh, people's uh, well-being around the food they're eating, uh, it's almost always the case that it's bad laws that are already on the books that are, are really <clears throat> impacting uh, consumers in this way. Do you have a top two or three on your hit list of laws that you would repeal in order to improve things? Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned farm subsidies. That would be the number one thing. I would abolish them all right now, uh, regardless of whether it's a big farm or a small farm. Um, farmers have been growing food for a long time, you know, uh, 10,000 years or so. Um, and they've gotten along pretty well uh, without government subsidies, which really uh, shift the market in unnatural ways and force us to eat things that we probably wouldn't. Um, and they make some foods less expensive, some foods more expensive. So farm subsidies. So, okay. Let me, historically, because I don't yeah. know, and our listeners may not know, <clears throat> you say they've gotten along for a while, for a long mm-hmm. time without them, but they've been in existence for, at least my memory tells me, for, for a fair amount of time in the United States. 
That's correct. Yeah. Um, so during um, FDR's Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, administration, one of, you know, the what was he the president like 11 times um, during one of his administrations, uh, we had the Great Depression, um, uh, kind of the lingering effects of that. And his agriculture secretary, um, Secretary Wallace, uh, proposed farm subsidies as a way to, and I'm paraphrasing, but almost quoting, um, temporarily deal with a national emergency. Right. You know, we were food was was a, a problem and there was starvation um, on the plains, you know, the Dust Bowl, things like that. So um, Wallace proposed these temporary solutions to deal with that particular emergency that was in, let's say, uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s, I think late 30s. And, you know, what we have now is still farm subsidies, that temporary solution to deal with a very specific emergency that hasn't existed for 80 years. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> I just want to say a word of thanks to you for taking the time to be with us. I think uh, our listeners uh, gained a good perspective on uh, how we need to be smarter about some of the things we do to make our food system more sustainable. So thank you for being with us and thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Balin Linkakin, Senior Fellow at the Reason Foundation. Um, Tom, as I said before, I said, um, you know, I'm real interested in food because I like to eat. It's a very, um, it's a very valuable, um, thing. So, um, uh, so as we begin our new year, we've gotten off to a good start by having three very, very good, challenging, interesting guests and, um, looking at some very, very important issues, food, Yes, we didn't look at the issue of of hunger, but we looked at food. And the more sustainable food is, the more opportunity there is to make sure that those who do not have enough do get some to eat. We looked at the issue of housing and those who are homeless, which is an ongoing uh, issue, which is very, very critically important. And we've looked at what's going on in government. And we were delighted to speak with a new Representative Mike Waller from Westchester, out of Westchester, Rockland, Putnam, a little bit of Duchess outside of New York City, and some very, very positive ideas about how we should be able to be looking at issues and trying to work in order to deal with what is in the best interest of all of us in the country. So thank you for being with us and just do it. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.